0: you finished the final edits of your novel, and now it's time to get it out into the world. A mistake many first-time authors make is rushing to get their book uploaded to Amazon as soon as possible. Then they sit and wait for the readers to come flocking. But nothing magical happens when you upload your book to Amazon. Nobody knows your book is there unless you tell them about it and every hour more books are being uploaded to Amazon. Do you know what books were uploaded to Amazon this hour? I sure don't. So how do you get readers so excited about your new book that they can't wait to buy it and tell their friends about it? How do you create hype for a novel and how do you do that if you've never been published before? Well, that is what we're going to talk about on this episode of Novel Marketing, the longest running book marketing podcast in the world. I'm Thomas Umstadt Jr., CEO of Author Media, and this is the show for writers who want to build their platform, sell more books, and make a difference writing books worth talking about. And we have a special guest on the show today who recently launched her debut YA novel, and I don't want to spoil the end of the story, but it did very well. She writes stories for teens and young adults with heart-pounding action and hope. She's an active member of the Novel Marketing community. You can find her at authormedia.social, and she also participated at Book Launch Blueprint as well as the Five-Year Plan. CJ Malasi, welcome to Novel Marketing.
1: Thomas, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So tell us about how you got started. What got you into writing in the first place?
1: I started writing because I was working with the youth ministry at my church and talking to the girls about the books they were reading, because I personally love reading, so I would ask them, what book are you reading right now? What are you enjoying? And I started picking up the books they were reading and I'd get into them. I'd understand why they liked them. They were exciting. They were great books. But then inevitably I'd feel really depressed at the end of them because they they kind of just had these really dark endings or they had all this other stuff in them that I was just, I can't believe a teen is reading this book right now and I can barely read this book right now and I'm an adult. I kind of just was like looking for an answer, an alternative, something that was as well written and exciting and engaging, but also brought in hope and had a Christian worldview and values in it, really. And uh, I, at the time, had a hard time finding it, so I just was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to write. I'm going to try to do this myself, and that was really the thing that propelled me in. I wanted to thrill the young adults and teens I was working with with stories that were incredible, but that also in deeper truths and had some, you know, a good message in them that wasn't just all doom and gloom.
0: What I love about this is that you started with your target reader, not with a story that was burning on your heart. You're like, these young girls I want to write a book that is the kind of book they would want to read, but also won't leave them depressed at the end. Because that's a big problem. Young women are more depressed now than they've ever been in recorded history. Maybe in the Black Death, it was worse, but we don't have records going back that far. I think this is really noble and from a marketing perspective, it's very savvy because it makes all of what we're about to talk about easier because you start knowing who your reader is going to be.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I talked to so many girls who were already depressed and struggling, and that was like half of the conversations I was having. And then I'm reading the books they're reading, and I'm like, well, this is certainly not going to help you feel any better with life or the world because this is really, really dark. And so it definitely has been the motivating factor from day one, really.
0: All right, so let's talk about the writing process. So you've identified a problem, you've identified a need, and you want to write a book that scratches that itch. So what did that writing process look like?
1: I think I started like many other writers where you you start writing the book, you write the whole thing, you think you're done after the first draft, and then you realize... That that is very untrue. So I came to that hard realization that the first draft was awful pretty early on. At that point, I, I kind of I love learning, so I started to read books on the craft of writing. I wanted to write a book that was well written, so I looked for ways to improve in the craft of writing. I went to writers' conferences. I took courses. I started to just really learn and develop and grow, and I learned how to write faster. I learned how to write better. And through that process, the story developed. It changed. The first book I wrote, which actually had seeds of the story that is now Recruit of Talionis in it, is not a book I want anyone to ever see. I've written many things since then. And now (laughs) this book, I was finally like, okay, this can see the light of day. (laughs) So it's been a process, but a lot of learning, a lot of growing in any way I can to become a stronger writer.
0: That's one of the signs that you're ready to publish a book is when you finally have eyes to see that that first book that you wrote That you were sure only needs a light copy edit is actually so bad it's unpublishable. (laughs) This is where the thou shalt not publish thine first book first rule comes from. It's hard for people to hear, right? There's people listening and they're still writing their first book and they're sure this is going to be it. This is going to be the masterpiece. And they don't realize that that first book is really about learning how to go through the process of writing a book building the confidence of writing a book. And just like if you want to run a race or compete in a sport, you have to practice. that first book is practice. And it's not like it's completely wasted, right? You were able to use elements of that first book. You're able to take the best parts and then build something new around them that was much better.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: In some ways, your first book is, you think it's a pearl, but really it's just a piece of sand that will become a pearl if you're willing to actually take the work to put it in. Because it's just a lot of work to make a grain of sand. I don't know what tectonic forces are required to make a grain of sand, but you know, we take it for granted because the sand's already there on the beach. But it's a lot of work to make a grain of sand, but it's even more work to turn that sand into a pearl. Hmm. So you've gone through this process, you're reading books on craft. At what point do you sign up for the five-year plan and start using that to kind of kick you in the pants when it comes to reading more books on craft?
1: Yeah, I signed up, I think, around about two years ago. So I'm not fully through the five-year plan, but I kind of did an accelerated version of it. Read way more of the books than you say to in a month, which is a lot of books. You know, wrote a ton of short stories, wrote a lot, kind of just condensed as much into shorter term as I could, connected with other authors and had them keep me accountable, all of that kind of stuff.
0: It's interesting because the five-year plan has been around for almost five years now, and nobody is doing it at the recommended pace. Everyone's either doing it accelerated or slower. <laughs> I don't think we have a single student who's like doing each quarter the quarter it's supposed to be done, which is kind of funny because the whole idea behind the course was like, this is the pace to do. And people are following the advice in the course, but they're not following the timing in the course, which is fine. You know, it's set up where you can do it in a self-paced way. And it's interesting to me that... No one's pace is the pace of the course.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm sorry to just go in that same direction, but <laughs> it's a great course. I learned so much through it.
0: Yeah. So, so, what did you learn in the course that you weren't already learning beforehand?
1: I think one of the best parts of the course is that it curates some of the best information and brings it all in, into one place. There are a million and one books you can find on the craft of writing, but that doesn't mean they're all solid books on the craft of writing. You know, Anybody can publish a novel. Anybody can publish a nonfiction book as well. So it's so nice that I could come in and be like, okay, these books, these are the ones I should be reading. And even in this order, and they build on each other and then writing the short stories. And I've had heard of writing excuses before the podcast, just being told like, now go listen to this podcast and actually do the exercises. All of that really helped me in terms of growing as a writer. And I think just learning to apply what I was learning instead of just taking in information and almost having information overload, I was seeing like, this is how I can start incorporating this into what I'm doing. And that really, I think, is one of the best tools that I've found with the five-year plan. And I still go back and re-listen to like the earlier years of it and like go back through the books. And just because I find reminders so incredibly helpful-
0: and you have kind of new eyes to see. As you grow as an author, you start noticing things more. Like when you're first reading a book, when you first learn to read, you don't really understand why the sentences are the way they are. You know, you can't spot foreshadowing. <laughs> but after a while, you're like, oh, this is foreshadowing. My wife yes. hates watching movies with me because I tend to spoil them because I'll point out exactly what the <laughs> screenwriters are doing. <laughs> or I'll predict in the first 10 minutes how the film is going to end, especially Disney stuff. It tends to be very formulaic. Which I'm not recommending writing formulaic Disney (laughs) stories, but for the record. So, okay. So you're going through the five-year plan. You're writing, reading books and you're writing short stories to kind of implement what you're learning. And then finally you go back and you're like, all right, I'm going to write the book for real this time. So what does it look like at that point?
1: I found that I'm a much faster writer because of the exercises and the things that I was doing. So I'm a more disciplined writer. So I no longer feel like, oh, I have to feel like writing. And that was definitely... A motivation before this, I can sit down and I can push through that first couple minutes or even first 20 minutes of difficulty and getting into that flow. But now I can get into a flow. I can write every day. I can do some of the things that I couldn't do before. So rewriting or really writing again for the first time. And this book happened much faster than it did the first times that I went through it and wrote it and then rewrote it and all of that. So yeah, that was definitely a big part of it.
0: So let me go back to what something you just said. You mean to tell me that it's possible to write even when you don't feel like writing?
1: Yes, I know. (laughs) I didn't want to believe it either, (laughs) but it is possible.
0: (laughs) Self-control is real, folks. It's not a myth. You can control yourself and do things even when you don't feel like it. You have the power at least over you. You may not have power over anyone else, but you have power over yourself if you choose uh, to wield it. And I will say this is one of the key distinguishing factors that I've noticed in authors that are able to turn this into a career. Some people that right on the side, or you know, they supplement or it's kind of a hobby, but the, the ones who are making a living at it, they treat it like a real job. And you do a real job whether you feel like it or not. Yes. Right. That's what makes it work. Right. It's not a hobby. It's one thing to go to the ski slope on your vacation where you want to go skiing. It's another thing to go to the ski slope for the 100th day in the year to talk to a 100th set of brand new tourists who don't know how to ski and teach them the basics of skiing. And at that point, it's a job. Yes. (laughs) So you got to treat it like a job, even if it's something that most people would be like, oh, my gosh, being a ski instructor, that seems so fun. It's like, yeah, I'm sure it is fun, but it's also real work like being a rock star looks really fun. It's a miserable job, actually. You're yeah. traveling. It's hot and sweaty. People are shouting at you all the time. And it's actually a really weird kind of mentally breaking job and very exhausting. Lots of pressure to do drugs just to keep up with the pace. Mm-hmm. And so everyone's like, oh, man, being rockstar would be so great. It's still a job. Yeah. <laughs> it's not even a particularly good one.
1: Yeah.
0: All right. So now you've got this book in hand. You wrote it on the good days. You wrote it on the bad days. So then did you just upload it to Amazon and you know move on to the next thing?
1: No, not at all. <laughs> I think I would have at one point and but honestly through listening to the novel marketing podcast and going through your different courses and just the different writers groups that I'm a part of now and everything, you know, having other input, I've learned that that is not the way to do it. So after a lot of deliberation, I decided to go the indie route, but I decided that that was going to mean I was going to do this as professionally as possible. So I hired a cover designer who was amazing to work with and she produced a cover I could never have Produced on my own, and then I worked with editors. So I worked with uh, John Schruger since he's a Marine. He looked at my book, all the military elements, told me everything I did wrong, which was extensive. Apparently, my version of the military <laughs> is not the right version of the military. So I got my edits back from from him, and he was like, kind of shredded my book again. And it was like, it's well written, but it's inaccurate now in these particular ways. And so I rebuilt it, I rewrote it. And I actually found that as hard as it was to do that, you go to the gym every day and you work out and it's not always fun in that moment. But later when you're stronger and you feel better, you're like, this was all worth it. And I felt like that was what happened with my edits. Like I went to the gym every day. And killed myself and came out on the other end with a book that I was way more excited to share with people. It just was stronger. It was cleaner. It was better because it had gone through these edits. And then I had a copy line editor and a proofreader and beta readers and gave it d- different parts of it to my critique groups and all of that as well. Just to get feedback on certain scenes, kind of let as many people as I could into the process with me so that I knew that I wasn't creating in a bubble. And the book, because so many have touched it, because so many have have given input into it, it became something I never could have created on my own because I never was in the military. I don't know that perspective. But now there's some of that in my book where I've had um, people reach out to me and say, hey, I was in the army or I'm in this branch of the military. And I felt like your military aspects were really accurate. And that- thrilled me because I knew that wouldn't have happened on my own. So it really like went through as many different sources as I could to make sure I was producing the best possible product to send out into the world.
0: And that's really key because you can do all the research you want and you'll still miss key elements that somebody who is in the hustle and the bustle would notice. And this isn't just true with the military, right? If your main character is a physician you should probably have a physician do an edit. Now, you had kind of an advantage in that John Sugar is both an editor and a former Marine. So he could act as a, a sensitivity reader, you know, giving you feedback on, like, what you got right and what you got wrong and give you good recommendations on how to fix it. Yes. Don't feel like you have to find that kind of magical person, right? <laughs> if you're like, I need somebody who is an astronaut to give feedback on the space scenes and I need them to be an editor. It's like that may not exist. But there are a lot of astronauts out there that you can find and well, it's not that many. It's a, perhaps a bad <laughs> example. There's some astronauts out there and you could potentially you can get them to read your book and give you feedback on the problems. And then you come up with the solutions if they're an editor. So much the better. But yeah. uh, as somebody who really appreciates that when people get it right, like guns, for instance. I'm from Texas. Everybody here knows how guns work. But there's a lot of people who write books that are not from Texas and they don't know how guns work and they don't bother to learn. <laughs> so they, they get really basic things about the guns wrong. And it's really irritating. And I've actually noticed recently that this has improved quite a bit. The ability to get feedback from subject matter experts is a lot easier now than it was 30 years ago, right? Imagine getting that feedback back from John when you had to mail him a paper copy of your manuscript and he had to go through it with a red pen and mark it up, right? It would have been a much bigger ask and it would have been a lot more hassle. And all that beta reader feedback, none of that would have happened. Books are, when the authors take the effort, (laughs) to get the feedback are improving. And I have noticed it in the books that I'm reading, and I really appreciate it. Now, you didn't actually launch your book right away. You put your book on Kickstarter. Walk us through why you did that.
1: Well, I decided to do a Kickstarter after really a lot of your advice. I took your crowdfunding course. I went through that. John Shruger also an accountability group that I'm in. And so I'm connected with him. And he did a Kickstarter for his book. So I had talked to him about it. I had other people I had communicated with about it. And the more I learned about it, I more intrigued I became, the more I was like, this is a really interesting way to kind of start your book's life. And it, what I loved about it is that it really allows a connection with your readers in a way that just launching it on Amazon doesn't. Because I know every one of my Kickstarter backers, I can message them, I can communicate with them, I can give them these extras and all, all this other fun stuff. I kind of just got hooked on the idea and well, why not? Why not see what can happen with a Kickstarter? And it ended up working out rather well for me. And I've, I really enjoyed the process of it as well.
0: And you make a lot more money off of your super fans. Like I backed your Kickstarter and I don't remember what I backed at 20 bucks, 40 bucks. That's way more than what I would have spent buying your book on Audible, which would have been a $10 credit. It allows you to enter your launch with a lot of money on hand and with a lot of confidence. Because how much did you raise in your Kickstarter?
1: A little over 8,600, 8,600. Okay.
0: It's probably enough to cover most of the editing, maybe all of the editing cover. Like you're yeah. more or less broken even, I imagine. Yeah. Or were you in the black yet when you went into your real launch?
1: Yeah, I think I was in the black, at least a little, maybe not a ton. But yeah, <laughs> when I yeah. went into it, it had covered because I got extra books and stuff, too. So, right. Yeah.
0: Well, that's a great place to be going into the actual launch of your book on Amazon and you're already in the black. And you have books on hand that are fully paid for. So when you sell those books, you're making really good money. That's the beauty of a Kickstarter. <laughs> and yes. you don't sell that many copies. You had 131 backers raise $8,600. That This is not uncommon. And what's great about this is that this doesn't undermine your potential Amazon sales. So 131 is not that much. The one thing it does undermine a little bit, and it's important to go into this with your eyes open, is that these 131 superfans are the most likely to leave you your earliest reviews. And when they buy the book on Kickstarter, those reviews aren't verified and they are much less likely to stick unless they're so much of a super fan, they're willing to buy your book again. Mm-hmm. But $8,600 is great <laughs> on a per backer basis. That's $65 per backer. Yeah. (laughs) A really good ratio. And people want to be a part of something. They want to have their name in the book. And they're willing to pay a premium for that, right? You didn't conjole them or pressure them into doing that. You just invited them. Be like, hey, this is what I'm doing. I'd love your help to make this happen. This is why I'm doing it. And people got on board to help you launch your book. So now... You have a little bit. You're not rich, right? Eighty-six hundred dollars. It seems like a lot of money, but after you pay all your editors and your cover designer and you print your book, you know it goes poof. <laughs> but <It does. laughs> you're going to your launch with a little bit of money, and you're going to your launch with a finished book. So walk us through what you did for the actual book launch.
1: Well, I really took a lot of the advice that I got from Book Launch Blueprints. One of the things that I try to do is apply what I'm learning. So I went through the Book Launch Blueprint. I have all my notes from that, which is an excessive amount of notes. And I just kind of took it all and began to work through what you guys recommended, what you and Jim suggested throughout that. So I you know, worked on sharing it with my email list. I built my launch team, which ended up being awesome. I have probably several people who are the lurker launch team members. But most of my launch team has been like incredible. That's probably been one of the biggest things that has helped my launch go well.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the launch team real quick. Did you use the Book Launch Blueprint method, the Tom Sawyer method, where the launch team folks had to buy a copy of the book to join yeah, the launch team?
1: I okay, did. Okay,
0: <laughs> so you're the first person I've had on the podcast has used this method that I recommend. So the classic method of Hey, if you'll join my launch team, I'll give you a free book. I don't recommend that. I don't recommend it in the course. And I get more pushback on that one thing than everything else. (laughs) So I want you to, to walk us through what the results were of the Tom Sawyer method of you have to pay to be a part of the launch team.
1: I think one of the biggest results was seeing that they were really excited to actually be a part of the launch. I have a variety of people who are on my launch team and all over the country even and it didn't seem like it was a hardship to them to buy the ebook even and just jump in. I, I even had the ebook at a lower price at the beginning of my launch so they could get it for three bucks instead of six and they were all excited to do that, excited to share about it. They had put a little of their own Hard earned money, it doesn't seem like a lot, but I think it's still the fact that they put money into it that they were like, I'm I'm a part of this too. I think it almost made them feel as though they were a part tied into this success or failure in a deeper way than maybe if I had just sent them a free copy.
0: Yeah, where your money is, there your heart will be also. Yeah. <laughs> and when you ask somebody to be on your launch team, you're asking for several hours of work for pretty much everyone that's worth more than six bucks or ten bucks to buy a book or three bucks mm-hmm. in your case. You can really tell if somebody's willing to put in a couple hours of work. You know, if they're not willing to spend the three dollars, then either they don't value their time, or they weren't really planning to be participating. They just wanted a free book, and so I'm really an advocate for this method. And in the Book Launch Blueprint, I talk about it a lot. So no, I'm not trying to convince you, but I do want to give a bit of a defense for myself because it's based off of some very solid psychology, yeah, <laughs> of like how people work. That also giving somebody a five dollar book is not. A strong motivation. Their time is valuable. They value their time. They're not going to be motivated by a free ebook that now they have to disclose and it hurts your algorithm rankings and all the rest of it.
1: Right. Yeah, it it worked well for me. My launch team has been amazing, really. I've done above and beyond things I expected. Getting pictures of Posters and coffee shops in Montana or, you know, Arizona and all these places. I live in Pennsylvania. I'm not going to those places and able to promote my book in that way, even. And then they're leaving reviews. They're doing so many different things and they're excited about it. And I mean, they paid for the book. They're on the team. <laughs> and they're just like, wow, this is, it's been a bit humbling in many ways, but also just so exciting to see their excitement catch on and everything as well.
0: One of the most satisfying f- things for me, for the book that I wrote, is the wedding pictures I've been sent from people who pose for wedding photos with their wedding photographer with my book. <laughs>
1: <That's> <laughs> and, and a
0: lot of the folks <laughs> in the launch team have now gone on to get married and have sent me their you know, launch wedding photos with the book, which is funny because I didn't do that when I got married. I probably <laughs> should have. Uh, so going back, I did the launch team? I, I have a whole section of the book launch blueprint that teaches the. Tom Sawyer, Gideon's 300 approach to launch teams. What else did you do prepping for the launch?
1: So I also set up my Amazon author page, my Goodreads author page. I made sure everything as far in advance as I could, that that was all up and running. I had my book on pre-order early enough to allow that to happen. And because I did a Kickstarter, Goodreads approved me uh, like in the summer when my Kickstarter was running, they let me set up my author page on there as well. I guess to them it was like published. Also, did all my category and keyword research with uh, Publisher Rocket. Every little detail I could do in advance, I did it to prepare for my launch so that I could set my book up in the best possible way. I have a one of the, the guys, he's in authormedia.social as well. He has published many nonfiction books and uh, he was in one of my writers' groups. So I just asked if I could pick his brain and took the things from Book Launch Blueprint and meshed them with my stuff and then asked him if he thought that would work and got feedback and kind of just went that route trying to fit in everything I could do um, as much as possible. <laughs> so.
0: This makes me so happy because this is what I created authormedia.social Social to be, was this place where people could learn from each other. So it's not just Thomas on the podcast telling you what to do, but it's also you learning how to make it work for you. And you know what, cause I'm not right all the time. And some of the things that I say may be right for some authors and they aren't right for other authors. And so you finding a mix that plays to your brand place to your strengths and place to your audience, right? Like teen girls, what I know about teen girls, I've already shared on this episode, I (laughs) vaguely know that they're depressed and anxious, but that's not remarkable. Pretty much anybody who listens to the news knows that teen girls are depressed and anxious right now. I couldn't help you tweet to that audience, but you know that audience really well. So you have to kind of interpret what you're learning from me and from the books and from other authors and adapt it so that you're creating something that will connect with those teen girls. And do it in a way that works.
1: Yeah.
0: Did you do anything kind of off the wall or experimental to reach these young ladies?
1: I've done stuff. I don't know that it's considered off the wall, but I've done things like creating character quizzes and character personality quizzes. Teens like that kind of thing. They'll do the quizzes to find out which character they're like or which Harry Potter house they're in or, you know, they do that kind of stuff. (laughs) They're curious about that. I've had, I've had teens ask me questions like which character I'm in in other books because they assume I'm doing those quizzes all the time as well. So I set one of those up and that's been great. It's brought in some additional readers or even just into my email list. And I've spoken wherever I can, but that, again, that's not really off the wall. So I've done like podcast guesting. I did a workshop with the Young Writers Workshop. They let me come in and do one of their office hours and talked with the students that were in there and connected with teens who want to write, which was a fun, different kind of thing that I didn't expect to do. It was a blast. And that I connected with a ton of kids that way. I got a bunch of them joined my email list. They asked me questions. They're excited about the book. So that's been really neat too. I guess my off the wall thing is um, right now during the launch month, I did a Where in the World is Recruit of Talionis, kind of like a, a game so people can send in their pictures. I have a gallery on my website for this month and I have like prizes people can win and do that kind of thing and just you know, get them engaging, buying the book, showing themselves with it in different places around the country, around the world. So that's been fun.
0: So you go on vacation, take this book with you and you're at the Taj Mahal and you take a photo of the book at the Taj Mahal or whatever. I love that. It's a sort of kind of fun, creative way of connecting with readers. And that's a great way to do social media, frankly. I don't know if you're encouraging them to do it on social media or not, but instead of you trying to create photos to share on social media. You're creating an excuse for other people to create photos that maybe they share on their social media where it's at least doing you some small benefit Mm -hmm. and it's not costing you time. You're spending your time connecting with your readers and then you're encouraging them to share with their friends.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, did you do a launch party?
1: I did an in-person launch party. So I have a couple of friends who are both entrepreneurs and they're excited about what I'm doing with my writing and all of that kind of thing. And they really were like, okay, you have to have a launch party. And they were they were pushing it. Then the Book Launch Blueprint, you and Jim were both like, hey, have a launch party. It's a a great time to like connect with people and be excited about the release of your story. So I did. I actually had it on my launch day. And it was one of those things, though, where it was an open house. So I had no idea who was going to come. I was kind of like... This could be really great or really depressing depending on who shows up or who doesn't and it ended up being so much fun. I way more people show up than I expected and it was a great time. I did a reading because they asked me to. I don't know that I would have done that, but it ended up being really worthwhile. Even after doing the reading, some of the guys who were there, this has been one of the most surprising things is the men who are interested in my story and after I did the reading, I had multiple of my friend's husbands going and picking up the book to buy themselves a copy because they wanted to read it. And so even that kind of thing was really, really fun. It was a great time to just be excited about sharing with the world the story that I had spent all this time laboring over. And it was a blast. And I didn't expect it to be as fun as it was, but I'm so glad that I actually did it.
0: Yeah. And you're selling those extra copies, those yeah. extra Kickstarter copies at full retail price that you got really cheap. And so- it's very emotionally rewarding. And if nobody comes, nobody knows that nobody came. And so it's a very safe right. place to fail. But I, something you're talking about, the husbands and men wanting to buy it, this is the kind of surprising thing I've noticed about writing for a Timothy, writing for a specific person, is that it's not exclusionary. The fact that you have a red dot on the middle of the target actually makes people— want to be a part of it, right? You put the velvet rope in front of the door, people suddenly want to go through the door more, not less. And it gives your writing a clarity, but it also makes it appealing in a really powerful way. And so instead of writing for everyone, where you end up not being appealing to anyone because you're desperate, you're like, hey, this is a specific book for a specific audience, but if you want to read it, you can. Some people are like, well, absolutely I want to read it. I don't want to be excluded. <laughs> I don't want yeah. to feel left out.
1: It's true. I think that's been the thing that has surprised me the most is the diversity of the people who are emailing me and commenting and leaving reviews even that are telling me that they read the book. They read it in like two days. My book is not short. It's a long book and they're reading it so fast. And it's been 11 year olds, which was way younger than I anticipated, but it's a clean book. So moms are like willing to give it to their kids and they're devouring it. And None of that was in my head when I was writing this book. It was definitely for the teen girls and even early 20-something-year-olds who struggle with depression, who are struggling in the craziness of this world and just needing some hope. And that was who I was writing for.
0: Well, speaking on behalf of the population who's not a teenage girl, I can tell you they don't have the market on depression and anxiety.
1: Yeah, (laughs) It's so true.
0: Right. Like, you know, these are common ailments, right? We're living in a very depressed time generally. A lot of people are struggling with that. And so if you have a solution, if you have even a a short hiatus, that can be uh, life-saving in some cases (laughs) and very relieving. And it's something that people want to experience. Now, you mentioned earlier that you have teenagers joining your email list. And this is something I get a lot of pushback because I push email list growth as a strategy. And people are like, yeah, but I write YA kids these days they don't do email they're doing the insta twitches and the tick tick grams and whatever you know, combine as many social media names as you yes. want so what has been your results that you've seen growing an email list of young people
1: i've been personally surprised by it because i know i'm in that same category that you think well teens don't check their emails if you look at a teen's phone the little number icon next to the like of unopened emails on their email app. It's ridiculous. It's probably like five digits long. They don't care about email. And it's sort of the idea that you have. But I've found that if they care about something, they will open their email. So having ways where I'm connecting with them and they're excited about me and what I'm doing and the books I'm writing and all of that, they're opening my emails. They're responding to my emails. They're actually engaging. And I'm personally shocked. But even yesterday, I spoke at a homeschool event, a local co-op. And one of the girls came up to me afterwards, and she was talking to me the whole time. She was 14, so a young teen. And afterwards, her mom found out that I have an email list. And she said, oh, I'm going to have her sign up for it. She's going to absolutely love getting emails from you. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh, wow, she's 14. And her mom saying she's going to read my emails. But I think it is a matter of, okay, if they care they open it, they read it, they will engage with it. So finding ways to actually make sure they care. I think part of it too with teens is they want to know that you care about them. And so if I can relate to them that this is why I'm doing this, this is why it matters to me that they experience hope in their crazy lives. I think because that is such a deep part of what I desire to do, they can sense that and they know I care about them. So they're ready to like care a little bit more about what I have to say at that point.
0: And that clear audience helps you write the kind of email that they would want to open. You're yeah. not writing a generic email to generic readers. You're writing an email specifically for teenage girls. And so that's going to influence your voice. It's going yeah. to influence the topic. If you don't feel like the email is going to be interesting to a teenage girl, don't send that email, <laughs> right? If they get used to getting interesting emails from you, they're going to start anticipating those emails and looking forward to them and, and seeking them out and wanting to open them right away You know, as soon as the email is available. So talked about a lot of the different tactics. I know you did a lot more than this, but I know everyone's wanting to know what were the results. So you did the Kickstarter, you did the work to rewrite the book, you did all of these book launch techniques, you had the party. And what kind of results did you see during those first weeks after the book was released?
1: Yeah, I was blown away, really, because you do the Kickstarter and you think, okay, did I drain my pool of people who are going to buy the book, but like you said, it's 130 some people. It's not as many as who might purchase the book in general. And I think because I did all of this work, I saw it pay off. I hit multiple category number one bestsellers, some number one new releases. I think my thing that I really did get the most excited about, in the sense of like Amazon numbers, was when I had a text come in from one of my friends with a screenshot of my book right underneath a Brandon Sanderson book. Like he was number six and <laughs> I was number seven and I was like oh, mind blown. I couldn't believe it. That was a very exciting <laughs> moment. And just seeing like, you know, I was typing and having people type in keywords to search for my book and my book started ranking on first page of results. Even if you looked up like teen and young adult books, like very general keywords, which, you know, grandmas look up for their, their grandkids kind of a thing. But my book was coming up on the first page and stuff like that, which was just seeing it was working. Books were selling. People were excited. People were leaving reviews. And the results actually, fruit was born after all the time of sowing the seed. It really did bear fruit. And that faithfulness to do the little things actually paid off in the end.
0: Yeah. And that's one of the techniques we teach in the Book Launch Blueprint is that if your launch team are buying your book, you can use them to really amplify your search engine rankings inside of the Amazon search engine. So that's what you're referring to there is the kind of the techniques and it really does work because of how Amazon's search engine works. So so I'm really excited. I'm not surprised. We do the Book Launch Blueprint every year and there's always some students who, you know, come to every live office hours, that's the Q&A portion. A lot of people take all the pre-recorded stuff, but you were at every live office hours. I think you had a question every single day. We're like, I'm gonna get my money's worth out of this course. And you are implementing things and putting them into practice. And it really is true that where you sow, there you will reap. And if you sow abundantly, you'll reap abundantly. And so if you're willing to put in the work, you do see the results. But I do have one question. That is, what things would you do again? What things would you stop doing? And what would you do differently?
1: So I think the things I would do again is all the things we've talked about. I plan to really engage with my launch team again, hopefully pull back some of the same people that have been so fantastic this time around, doing the keyword research, the category research, and continually building my newsletter, all of those kinds of things to that are the basic foundations and things that we talk about in Book Launch Blueprint and all of that that you guys go through. Some of the things I would do differently, I had a major tech issue with Ingram Spark because I it was like a whole upload issue and it really affected launch day specifically, which you never really want that to happen. So going forward, I will make sure some of that's ironed out more in advance. I also wish I had set up some more like podcast guesting and interview type things than I did. And I wish I had done that much further in advance because as it was coming down to the wire, I was getting all the final details ready. I didn't really want to be pitching podcasts. It was like one more thing, you know, you have to listen to it. You you want to do a a good quality pitch to each person. And I just didn't have the time with other work and then planning for the launch to actually do that. So moving forward, I would love to, you know, start even thinking about that now for my launch for book two, so that when I'm ready to launch that I have some of those already set up, even pre recorded, so that I'm not worrying about that during the launch.
0: And on that, one thing you might consider is going ahead and pitching them now as you're doing the research yeah. and finding podcasts that might have you on. Because if you do a good job on the interview, you know, today, a year from now, when your next book comes out, He'll be like, oh, come back anytime. Let us know when your next book is out. And then you have this kind of soft invite where you don't have to listen to another episode and put together a special thing. You're like, hey, Joe, it's great to talk to you a few months ago. I finally have a release date for my book. And he'll be like, oh, great. You know, well, let's record it on such and such date and I'll have it go live the day before your release or day after or whatever. And that kind of friendly pitch only happens after you nail the first one. And so you can do those first interviews now, right? You're a published author. You can pitch Podcasts that are targeting teenage girls on a variety of topics. You can yeah. pitch podcasts that are targeting their parents. You can pitch, you know, Christian or religious podcasts. So the constellation of potential podcasts is actually pretty large for you. And it's overwhelming to be like, I gotta pitch all of these in these next two weeks.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. I wish I had done more of that farther in advance. So that's a great idea. I will Take heed to that after maybe I recover from this launch. Start doing a little bit more of the, the prepping. Rest, rest. And then I also, my Kickstarter and my launch were within like three and a half months of each other. Now, that window was a bit tight, especially since it was my first for both. So first Kickstarter, first book launch. I think I might need a solid month to recover from all of that just because of the, all that's required. That I now know, but I didn't know going into it. You know in your head all these things, but until you actually experience it, you don't know how exhausting fulfilling a Kickstarter actually is until you do it. (laughs) So, yeah, so that that kind of stuff, I think I would like to give myself a little more breathing room or at least have myself set up a little bit better in advance so that when it comes, it's more just walking through those doors instead of having to build the door and open it first.
0: Yes, I agree. And it makes the Kickstarter... A little bit more rewarding because mm. part of the perk is that you get the book first. So it's one thing to get the book, you know, a week before everyone else. That's not very special. But if you get the book two or three months before everyone else, that really makes you feel special.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: And that whole time when people know other people are reading the book, but I can't because I didn't get the Kickstarter, but I can't pre order it, it creates a desire to back the next Kickstarter. So, putting in that sense of longing. And I think it was you, it was either you or Corinne came to me like, hey, can you put a crowdfunding board on authormedia.social? So I added a whole space just to talk about crowdfunding. So if you're not wanting to be surprised, a bunch of crowdfunding campaigns have happened with the authors who are doing the basically in real time asking questions and reporting results. So there's like a whole mini course here just in the questions and answers uh, of y'all helping each other out. That's made me very happy to see. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes. Yeah, that was definitely Corinne. We were texting about and she said, I should ask Thomas. And I said, yes, you definitely should ask Thomas for that because it's fantastic being able to brainstorm with other people while you're working on these kinds of things.
0: So when does the next book come out? Do you have a a target release date?
1: I'd love to do my Kickstarter earlier in the year next year, so early 2023, and then release book two probably like six months after that. Giving myself that breathing room this time, hopefully. (laughs)
0: Well, if you want to watch that process, if you want to watch CJ do her Kickstarter campaign and watch her launch her next book with everything she learned from this first one, I encourage you to join her email newsletter, see how she does it, or watch that Kickstarter campaign, maybe even back it. We'll have a link to her website. com, is the website. Recruit of Talionis is the book. And CJ Malacey, thank you so much for joining us today. On the Novel Marketing Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Thomas. This is great.
0: And if you would like to learn more about the book launch blueprint, you can find out more about it at authormedia.com. Just click on courses in the navigation. Also, special thanks to our featured patron today, Daniel Bishop, author of Place of Refuge. Dana Joe knew she was meant to be a mom, her body disagreed. After a devastating miscarriage, she starts to research foster care and adoption. Will heaven send a baby to a family full of love to give? Place of Refuge is the first novel in the heartwarming Baskin Family Foster Journal series. Daniel Bishop, thank you so much for supporting this podcast financially and helping keep this show on the air. The Novel Marketing Podcast is a production of Author Media. Our producer is Lloyd Christine. This episode's audio was edited by John Sugar and William Umstadt and the blog version is crafted by Shauna Lettler. I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr., joined by C.J. Malacy, saying thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.